Hi, and welcome to NASIO Voices, where we talk all things state IT. I'm Amy Glasscock in Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm Matt Pincus here in Washington, D.C. On today's podcast, we'll be speaking with Maryland Department of Information Technology Secretary Michael Leahy, who has served officially in the CIO's position since April 2018. Before that, Mike worked in different levels of government and has also had a long career as an attorney. Mike also serves as treasurer on our NASIO Executive Committee. And today we'll be talking with him about how his legal background influences his work as state CIO, as well as some of his priorities this year. Mike, thanks for joining us on NASIO Voices. Amy, uh, Matt, it's great to be here with you. Thanks for joining us. So, Mike, obviously it is uh, not a typical summer by any means, but have you been able to do anything fun uh, given our current circumstances? Well, absolutely. I mean, I quite frankly have fun every day. Uh, <laughs> you know, this job is full of new challenges. But outside of work, the most exciting piece of fun was our daughter and her husband built a new house and finished and got to move into it just before everything locked down. Wow. We got to visit them and our grandkids. And it was just a real treat. That's great. I know um, Amy and I have both talked about how much we've uh, enjoyed getting to see our parents during this pandemic, and it's hard for people who cannot. So in our introduction, we mentioned that you have a background in, in law, which from what we can tell is a bit unique for state CIOs in charge of technology for state government. Tell us a little bit about your career, how it's developed into uh, becoming state CIO. Certainly. Well, I still have no idea what I want to be when I grow up. Uh, <laughs> when, when I was much younger, I would show people my resume and they would say, good God, young man, do you have any idea what you want to do? This is all over the place. And now they say, what a breadth of experience. This is amazing. You've done all these different things. But I always had an underlying plan. And all of these things connected very well for me. I started out uh, in college studying biology and chemistry and such things because I was the kid who decided very early on I was going to be a surgeon. And when I started studying such things, came to the conclusion that was not for me. I went into the electronics industry because back in those days with degrees in molecular biology, if you didn't want to study more biology or medicine, you took whatever job you could get. And I went to work for Motorola as a two-way radio maintenance contract salesman and learned lots about the communications and telecommunications industry. And ultimately, they ended up sending me to law school. And after my second year of law school, I was offered and accepted a White House Law Fellowship. And that ended my relationship with Motorola and started me down the path of practicing law, mostly in the areas of technology transfer and new technology development. After that, tell us sort of how you got into state government and then how you became state CIO in, in 2018. Certainly. I have basically every decade of my adult life done at least two years of public service. In the 1980s, I was the first director of the Medical Biotechnology Institute at the University of Maryland. In the 1990s, I worked in local government 
And the big plus there for me was I met my wife working for the county executive and more recently was the city attorney for Annapolis and had worked uh, rather closely with Governor Hogan as a client in the past. And because he was aware of my practice and the people I was dealing with on a day-to-day basis, and because of the work I was doing with his team in terms of developing technology and innovation for the state, when the position opened, I was thrilled to get asked to come and take these things on as the new CIO for the state. In March of 2017, an acting basis and then was confirmed uh, the following January by the state Senate. Great. So last week we had Ted Cotterell on, who is the chief privacy officer in Indiana. And you have said that in addition to your role as CIO, you also cover the role of chief privacy officer for the state of Maryland. And that's also not very common among state CIOs. So can you talk about your focus on data privacy and also tell us why should other CIOs care about privacy? Yeah, absolutely. Well, as many of us have been saying for quite some time, regardless of what technology we are utilizing or wish to incorporate into our activities, we're always manipulating and managing data. And how we choose to handle that data and govern it is critical, not only to what kind of a job we're able to do. I I hearken back to what Peter Aiken says regularly, that bad data and anything awesome leads to garbage. And over the last 15 years, it has become increasingly obvious that because the corporate world has used data more and more efficiently and more and more effectively to create convenience for people, most folks have not thought at all about the actual impact that that has on their lives and the analytic tools that are looking at them daily. Uh, I became very interested in this a little over a decade ago and became active in the IAPP, the Association of Privacy Professionals. And effectively, for CIOs, we have two duties. Typically, we are responsible for back office operations for the state. But as more and more technology is used to interface with citizens and we start to operate in a way that people expect from businesses and banking and everything else, it becomes more and more important that people understand what we're doing with their data. And we have to recognize that they have a public trust in us that doesn't necessarily flow through their business relationships. And we have to keep them apprised of how we are protecting their private data. Yeah. Yeah, that's really true. So for some of the CPOs, many of them report to the the CIO in states less so as that structure in the private sector. Do you think it makes sense for the CIO to kind of oversee enterprise data privacy? Um, gee, you're going to get me in trouble here, Amy. I, I actually do not think so. I, <laughs> I think chief data officers, chief privacy officers, as well as chief information officers should all report to the CEO. Uh, because they they have different functions and there are potential conflicts in what is most important to each of them that I think they should have to make the case as a group 
rather than uh, having one of them have complete control over the function of how we're dealing with data and the privacy associated with that data. Yeah, yeah. So we know that Maryland has something called the one-stop business portal. So if someone in your state wants to start a new business, they can go to one website and figure out all of the different steps they need to take across multiple agencies. Can you tell us more about that, how it came to be, and any advice you might have for states who want to do something like this but haven't yet? Absolutely. And that is, uh, I see it as my legacy to the state of Maryland. We began in 2017 looking at ways to consolidate uh, accounts for citizens. As you can imagine, in most governments, even today, for each agency, there is a separate web interface, a separate password, a separate identity. And what we are creating here is a one-stop portal where any interaction with the state of Maryland, ultimately, it's done digitally will be done through that portal. Citizens and businesses and even inanimate objects like pieces of real property and contracts will have identities that are specifically associated with the individuals responsible for them or the individuals themselves so that any interaction with the state will be able to be done through a single account. And the other advantage to this is not only does it simplify how citizens look to interacting with the state because there's one portal, one interface, it also gives us one place to not only collect all of our analytics and our data about what services and what needs people are requesting, what time, but it also gives us the ability to work with my my other love, which is self-sovereign identity. We are working on building a methodology where, as I said, each uh, entity or person, whether artificial or real, will have an identity that is their single identity for the state of Maryland that will be secure and will be controllable only by them without access necessarily from the state. And what I mean by that is ultimately, we are seeking to build a system where the identity and all of the personal information on a particular individual will reside on a device that they control. And for the state to access that, they have to opt in to letting the state utilize it for a particular transaction. So again, we're going to give citizens the power to control their data and their privacy personally. It's a really interesting approach, Mike. And I I guess one of the things while you're talking about that piqued my interest was this focus on digital government and making it easier for citizens to interact with state government. Obviously, a top 10 priority uh, for, you know, in the NACIO annual top 10. And can you just talk about, you know, how your focus in Maryland on improving that citizen experience, how that's benefited during COVID? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it has made a huge difference because uh, I'll give you an example. In building our contact tracing application, because of the work we've already done with One Stop, we were able to cut our development time uh, almost in half for the back end of our contact tracing. And in general, we're able to 
utilize different modules from the portal for any service we have to ramp up in a hurry for citizens. And again, because we have a single interface uh, on the portal, for those digital services that are not on the portal yet, we refer uh, the citizens or any user to the agency website, but we also have the ability for them to contact a real living human being and speak to an individual about what it is they're trying to accomplish and do that in short. This leads to far less reutilization of processes that people have to reinvent the wheel every time they want to call about something. But it makes it far easier for the folks on the other end in the call centers and working in the agencies to actually address particular concerns in a timely way because we are, in effect, consolidating and standardizing our responses to them. That's great. And, uh, you know, one other thing that has certainly gotten a lot more attention during the last few months of the pandemic is IT and legacy modernization. Legislators in Maryland had a joint hearing on on this topic last week. NASIO executive director and friend to all of us, Doug Robinson, was one of the folks who testified. And um, can you talk about your involvement in these efforts specifically in Maryland and I guess generally what challenges you see that are associated with large-scale legacy modernization efforts? Yeah, absolutely, Matt. I, I think the biggest challenge in normal times is that the states spent significant funds on building these systems. And uh, as you know, folks in government are risk adverse. And if something is working, they really are reticent to change it quickly. Right. Couple that with the fact that although we are attempting to build an enterprise, and that's for another day's discussion, Maryland is still a very federated system. The executive agencies are able to set their own mandates for what technology they intend to use and how they intend to use it. I can cajole, I can suggest, but I can't force them to do much of anything. So the biggest challenge we face today is because of the shortfall in tax revenues that all states are looking at, it becomes all the more important to see if there are efficiencies we can create very quickly by modernizing some of our systems and uh, thereby start saving money immediately. Uh, the second issue, and, and as you said, the legislators and the governor are both very concerned about this, is technology is moving so quickly that uh, we in Maryland have focused this last two years far more on governance and on developing policies that we think will lead to, as we said earlier, the integration of data practices and the use of technology in a more enterprise-based way. I mean, one of the things we've implemented this past year is I have a plain English policy and I have <laughs> asked each agency to come to us not with a technical solution, but with a problem that they explain to us in English without any reference to technology. And once we're in agreement that we understand the problem and the workflows and the other aspects of it that are necessary to think about before we can solve it, only then will we start talking to them about 
what technology solutions we already have in place that they could utilize or whether it will require us to go out and find new technology. Yeah, and obviously governance and you know implementing policies are a lot easier than budgeting hundreds of millions of dollars for these you know multi-year projects especially you know when states are are not seeing much revenue right now during the pandemic and it is even challenging during normal times right absolutely so we've covered quite a few topics already but what priorities do you have going on right now that maybe we haven't talked about well i think we've talked about most of them the the largest one that we haven't really talked about in depth yet is you know how do we as the folks responsible for IT policy and for smaller agencies and mid-sized agencies the providers of IT services become more effective and more efficient in light of the pandemic so the most significant priority right now is for us to figure out how we're going to make uh, remote work more efficient. It appears it's here to stay, and I have become a significant proponent of its uh, value and uh, its advantages. And so at this point, the key priority is finding ways to make it easier for people to do their work and to make sure that it is as close an experience to working side by side. Because I, I don't know about you, but in my case, most of my creative ideas and my back and forth that leads to us moving forward on particular projects is done in settings where we're sitting around a table at a whiteboard talking about how we look at the problem and what it is we want to solve. For whatever reason, most remote communication loses something in the body language and the voice tone and just in the uh, being in the same location for whatever reason. And and that's what we're focused on right now. Or some of your initial ideas for how to do that. Well, I think the most significant ideas about how to do that go to ways to find uh, telecommunication tools that allow not only for video so the individuals can all see each other in a significant number because some of these meetings are up to 30 people and 30 people on the screen isn't worth seeing any of them. So it's it's, uh, getting the automation of switching between who is speaking and who wants to answer or ask questions. And then also capturing whatever is done in terms of whiteboards at multiple locations so that everyone has a single experience that we can look back at and remember who added what particular aspect or artifact and uh, what its place was in the discussion and in the plan going forward. So it wouldn't be an SEO Voices podcast with the CIO if we didn't talk about cybersecurity. So what are some of the current challenges or successes that you guys are dealing with around cybersecurity right now? Absolutely. Well, I think the the biggest challenge is that it is becoming increasingly apparent that uh, many of the local governments have significant issues because they have neither the the bandwidth nor the staff to keep track of everything. And not to say that we do either, but we're in a better position than they are. So 
we have been called upon a number of times recently to help municipalities and counties in the state that were dealing with ransomware or with particularly invasive data searches. And I suppose that uh, what I'm most proud of is that we've been able to address their concerns and help them uh, in a relatively straightforward manner without spending a lot of time or a lot of effort. And the biggest exciting issue is that we are undertaking bringing our own SOC in-house so that the entire network for the state of Maryland will, uh, a year from now basically, have all of its security uh, controlled from a single location rather than from multiple contracts. Let's stay on topic with cybersecurity and talk a little bit about something that we hear from CIOs and CISOs about across the country, and that's uh, workforce challenges. We talked to Andy Hanks a few weeks ago, CISO in Montana, about some creative initiatives that he's undertaken in, in Montana to not just recruit, but to keep his top cyber talent. And so it got me thinking when we were going to talk to you, you know, Maryland is blessed geographically and because of a lot of industry, military and civilian, to have a significant amount of cyber professionals in your state. Has it been difficult to attract those individuals to come work in state government? And then I guess one thing that I would really like to hear is if you have any advice for how to recruit and retain top cyber talent. Absolutely. It's been very difficult. And as you say, it is not for a lack of talent. We have some amazing resources throughout the state, but because of the contractor base for the federal government and a number of the private sector companies in the cyber field, uh, we cannot compete with the salaries or the personal freedoms that are typically associated with working in the private sector. And with regard to both the federal government and the local governments, uh, again, we pay substantially less than they do. So our principal inducement to get talented folks to come work with the state is twofold. Uh, We seek beginners who are just starting their career. And the principal advantage we hold for them is that we can demonstrate to them in real time, that they will have substantial responsibility early on in their career that they would not have at least a year or two longer in the private sector. Uh, The second piece of it is that, as you said, because of folks coming out of the military, we have a number of people that leaving the military uh, are still interested in doing public service and are still interested in the benefits associated with the state and military pensions being piggybacked on top of each other. And we we have far more success with folks in that venue. Uh, The third area that I think is going to lend itself to additional success in the future is because we are moving more and more to remote workforce, one of the significant difficulties we've had is lots of folks don't want to to where our offices are in the boonies. And if they can work remotely, you know, three or four days a week, uh, 
they have said in our surveys that they'd be far more interested in talking to us. So we're just getting started ramping up a program to look into how we will take advantage of that once we have some revenue and the hiring freezes come on. So really your advice, I guess, to other state CIOs is to sell the unique mission and the public service aspect, as well as just increased responsibility that you probably wouldn't get in the private sector? I would agree with that. And I would also take as a piece of that advice that, you know, the way folks' careers have become, no one stays with the same company for 20, much less 30 years anymore. Mm -hmm. And spending a couple of years or several, if they like it, in government gives them insights and information that they couldn't possibly garner elsewhere that will help them further in their career in the private sector should they decide to leave. So absolutely, it is not only about doing public service, but it's about learning things that are of significant value to the private sector in dealing with government. Got it. In the DC region, that that is a critical skill for most people working in this field. Definitely. Okay. As usual, uh, around here, before we end, we like to lighten things up a little bit with a segment we call The Lightning Round. And we'll ask you three non-work questions so that our listeners can get to know you a little better. Are you ready? Absolutely. Now that sports have started up again, although maybe not for long, given the news out today, we're recording this Monday for those listening. uh, What's your favorite sport and who is your favorite team? Oh, goodness. Of sports that most people watch, my favorite sport is football, and my favorite team is the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, If we want to get into the uh, more esoteric, my actual favorite sport is lacrosse, and my favorite team is Loyola College, my alma mater. All right, question two. What is your favorite season and why? Spring is by far my favorite season, and for no other reason than the days are getting longer, the days are getting warmer, and things are starting to grow again. Mm -hmm. All right, and last question. Tell us something your fellow state CIOs would find surprising about you. You mean like I'm an alien? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Goodness. You all know about me. I'm an open book. Uh, folks know about my my previous racing career uh, with Audis. They know about my playing lacrosse. I, I guess the most surprising thing is, although I've spent most of my uh, life in Maryland, uh, moved here when I was very young, I still yearn to uh, go back to my birthplace at some point, which is Rapid City, South Dakota. Oh, Did not great. know that you were born in South Dakota. See, we learn something new every day, Amy. <laughs> yes. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Always great to uh, get get a chance to talk with you and appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much, Amy. Matt, hope to talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Nacio Voices. As always, we truly appreciate you listening to the podcast and would appreciate it even more if you would just leave us a review. Good or bad, although fair warning, we'll be deleting any negative reviews. (laughs) Thanks again and hope everyone is staying healthy, safe, and sane.